Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Uddhahang dhammang sanghang namasami Today is the Asala Puja, which for the monastic Sangha indicates that tomorrow is the day when we enter the, what's called entering the Vasa, which means we determine, we commit ourselves to, to staying in this monastery three months. And uh, in that time, reviewing our training trying to look at the conventional aspects of it, commit ourselves to some fairly detailed study and um, study in terms of studying things that we're going to do, things we're going to work on in ourselves, like the way we act, the way we speak, the things we refrain from, the the correct ways of doing things. um, So this can be quite irritating because of the 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 detail of it and the the fineness of it and the way it's rather like sometimes like feel like you feel like you're a puppet on a string whereas every little movement of your hand is is dictated you can't you have to wear your robe this way and walk this way and wash your bowl like this and stand up like this and sit down like this and do this on on this day but not on that day do it in this order and not in that order these kind of things one can feel very much like you know this, what's this got to do with freedom or liberation um, and maybe there's an easier way to do it than all this and it can actually bring up a lot of um, irritation or negativity or feeling like I don't want to go through all this, this dressage, this kind of prancing around, doing all these particular little moves for, for no apparent reason, or for, you know, because they're actually much more reasonable, sensible things to do. Much, much more reasonable, sensible things to do than to live in England wearing, wearing brown robe, shaving your head, not eating afternoon, um, reciting things in a defunct language going through all kinds of obscure procedures over sharing alms bowls and uh, having your fruit guppied and these kind of things. <laughs> these things actually maybe they're just cluttering up the mind with the useless derelict arcana. And three months of it, well years of it actually, uh, so this is my 20th year of this, and most of those years, one has had to, one has uh, been in a situation where, for three months of it, all these things are. You sit and listen to all these things being spelled out, excruciating detail, and some of it particularly, with with the clear knowledge that it is of no relevance. For example, we have rules about. Uh, crossing, crossing rivers, crossing, going on ferry boats with bikinis. Well, there aren't any bikinis at the moment, mm-hmm. and well, I've never actually been on a ferry boat in the 20 years. It's, but the, this is one of these rules you have to explain with a proper procedure, or travelling with a caravan of thieves, <laughs> which I've never, I don't know, if thieves travel in caravans anymore. <laughs> But there's, a, you know, there's all kinds of things about travelling in caravans with thieves. 
and having ivory needle cases and what to do with, if invited to the king's palace that, the, that one should not enter the king's bedchamber of a head anointed king if he hasn't had his head anointed then it's alright <laughs> <laughs> so having sometimes people seem sometimes to delight in going through the kind of refinements of well it's alright if he's not, a, he's not a king of the Kshatriya clan then it's okay and uh, something in the mind can just start to fume and seize <laughs> uh, these uh, these minutiae and uh, as is quite often the case with the human mind we we get lost in the the, the, the in the details so we can't see the wood for the trees as they say and yet kind of just and, and there's a kind of it can be a sort of fascination with all these details because the more the more detailed you are the more energy you put into it somehow that makes you better and more sincere more really committed to it someone can actually struggle along you know, in a, taking a sort of strange pleasure of righteousness feeling that there's you know the amount of attention you put in all these details makes you feel you're really right and you're not going to spare any effort in order to be absolutely pure and right but notice actually that doing all this doesn't make you feel pure and right it makes you feel righteous but, but actually the result of it is you tend to find yourself feeling always anxious and, and uptight and worrying whether the standards are going to slip or not whether people might suddenly start leaping on ferries with bikinis <laughs> any moment or a ivory needle cases would be able to be whipping them out of their pockets and dashing into into bedrooms of head anointed kings <laughs> if these things are not really kind of the, the, the standard isn't held and there, you know you feel that gradually these things are being eroded and that one's life is is set up to to actually preserve and maintain these glorious things of our Buddhist heritage <laughs> and then there's kind then of course you meet people of other even other Theravada Buddhists who have totally different interpretations of how you operate with this thing of um, different commentators have different interpretations of it and then some of the exchanges can get quite quite bitter and quite quite passionate over you know and somebody who holds a different view can be someone who's a real scumbag you know for for his the way they they allow they allow you you know, some kind of your fruit juice hasn't been strained seven times through muslin only once you know it's a real kind of a, a sleazy monastery <laughs> <laughs> but under, behind it all one has to keep recognizing behind the conventions just the the, the the very very basis of the Buddha's teaching. If you won't, you don't practice the Buddha's teaching. You don't practice the Four Noble Truths. You don't practice meditation. Then it is really just another waste of time. It's just a kind of thing you can do, like um, philately or mushroom collecting. You can get good at it. But to really practice and understand the teaching, you're always looking at. Uh, trying to look at any experience of suffering in your mind and what causes it and to take responsibility for it and you can see the, the suffering of irritation, ill will opinionatedness, conceit, boredom, restlessness you can see these kind of things come up and your commitment is really to, to penetrating this to penetrating this and, and trying to see through it get through it and often the, the monastic life offers you a, a particular like a sand tray like a, like a playpen where you get all these things that can bring up in your mind these, actually these things which have no real not really in the worldly level very much consequence which you, can, which you can see which you've kind of put into contact with so you can see your fascination with them your contempt of them your boredom with them 
your love of them, your belief in them, you know, just what, what it does to your mind. And all these things, so you've got a kind of a safe area within which you can contemplate how your mind behaves, how it acts when it's, art, when it's doing things that it hasn't chosen to do, when it's conjoined with things that it's not, it's not, it doesn't like, or it's conjoined with things that it does like, or, how, or the, the underlying volition with it to, to be fascinated or the need to be fascinated, or the, 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 the assumptions that our life should be continually association with things that are exactly the way I like them, and nothing that's awkward, irritating, tedious should ever happen to me. If it does, something's gone wrong with the great plan. These kind of assumptions that, that make us so, so silly, and so restless, and so petty, I mean that we're actually we're always kind of guarding our life against possible irritants, and in a, in a sense of uh, commitment, tends to take you into the area where you can't you don't make the choices anymore. The whole spirit of commitment takes you into a place when suddenly things are going to come up. Think you're not going to be able to hide. You can't close the door. You, you you know you do have less choice on you can't filter out so much the things that happen and we can think that the monastic life is rather protected because in a way it is but it's certainly not protected from greed hatred and delusion it's not protected from pride and conceit it's not protected from restlessness and boredom it's not protected from vanity and it's not protected from and you know it, it, so it's a kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it's set up to, not to protect from one of these things, but to, to actually make it possible to work with these things without harming other people, without creating too much karma over it. Because actually it's a life of, of, of uh, in one way it's a life of completely unimportant life in one, le- one level. It's a life of no, no personal significance. One isn't, kind of, you're, in a, you're in a kind of, the, the standard of it is a community rather than the individual. So we, you know, the individuals in our, our, our feelings are somehow of less significance. One isn't living one's own life. We make that commitment to enter into an area where the choices have been made. And it's very important to understand that, that principle. When one enters the area of commitment, then for, for, for sure what's going to come up is the, is the minds, the personality mind, its its differences, its wavering, or its its uh, its projections onto that, its views, its attitudes, and the change of them. Which why it's very for for real um, cleaning and clearing and transcendence. It's very important to make commitment and to understand it. It's a kind of energy, and it's a kind of one-pointedness. But where it where it one must be careful about it is that that in that in that action, it's not just commitment to the the, the notional thing that you're you're saying, but commitment to to use it to understand the yourself through that, to use it as a mirror to understand yourself, to use it as a mirror to look at the the kind of projections one can create onto it, to use it as a mirror to see how you view yourself in accordance with that. Now actually when we, when we the, the moment of commitment is like there's a kind of jumping through, there's a, there's a letting go, there's a giving up. Whenever we make a commitment to something, a promise or a vow or, or 
taking the refuge in precepts whatever the words are the action of the heart is like I'm giving I'm just kind of dropping the options just for this at this moment there's a sense of the options of being the ways out of being let go of we're just going to be really we're going to just be this whatever this signifies to us this can be purity or aspiration or a sense of applying ourselves with energy or a t- direction towards towards purity towards wisdom towards compassion towards understanding and that moment we, we throw ourselves into it we drop ourselves into it into that that uh, spirit but for most people or for the mind it's difficult to, to stay at that level as, as a continual reference what tends to happen is we form an idea of it the mind forms a, a, a view of it so for example we could say well I've made a commitment to being a being a, a bhikkhu the other week some people made commitments to, to the training now what happens after the moment is that the thought comes up well now I'm a bhikkhu I'm a Buddhist monk that's what I am before I was a layman now I'm a Buddhist monk so suddenly that moment has become a self an identity I am this I'm not that that means I'm, I probably means I believe in everything of Buddhism you know, Buddhism is right I am a Buddhist this is the right thing to be doing and so suddenly that that experience has turned into a view a concept a notion it's been we conceive of who we are and we conceive of what we're doing and then we begin to form opinions about it as perhaps at first we think this is a really good thing to do really good although we wouldn't be doing it and then sooner or later something comes up that makes you think well maybe it isn't such a good thing or maybe there's other things that are just as good or somebody who isn't doing it is somehow inferior or a threat if I am this and you're not it that means you're not as good as I am doesn't it or perhaps you've got you you're better than I am or maybe you're the same as I am we're all Buddhists together aren't any non-Buddhists are they around and then somebody comes along as um, you know a kind of a Sufi mystic and uh, seems to have a lot of strength and clarity and vision it, and deals with things in a very in a different way that's suddenly interesting and revelation because all your stuff all this old Buddhist stuff you, you know you've you heard it you've been bored with it by now and somebody comes along and not only that they you, know, you can dance <laughs> <laughs> but they you know you really encourage it well that's nice isn't it thank goodness well, that's a silly thing not being able to dance it's natural to dance you can dance and you can sing and, and so on and it's just as good or is it? or am I betraying the cause of non-dancing as the, as the principle of my life it's not, I'm not a dancer how do I relate to dancers now? to Sufis or ecstatic um, evangelists so we get into this kind of conflicting position who's better, which is worse, which is better, which is the right thing and what's happening is the mind is forming a view we've stepped back from the moment of, of actual experience into conceiving our experience, into thinking about it or getting an emotional, emotional measurement of it And in the moment when we we feel a sense of commitment, often there's a kind of there's a mood in the heart of of rapture or enthusiasm or joy or conviction. There's this kind of emotional presence behind it, and you can't actually sustain that. It may come and go. It may may be there for periods. It may be there when you if you come to, only come to the monastery now and then. It may be that every time you come, you get this kind of rush of it. 
You know, if you lived here, you wouldn't. <laughs> this is not to say that you know that anybody's got it wrong. It's just the it's kind of the way it works. So you know, you can't really feel a sense of of continual enthusiasm about something you're actually living in right now. It's like you can't be attracted to your own body. Yeah. It's all right. So you may find that it kind of comes and goes in little moments, and then when there's that moment of enthusiasm, oh, that's right, this is good, this is it, you know. And then the view appears. Because I feel that emotion, then it backs up the feeling that I'm doing the right thing, this is really good. And if any, and then, but then what happens is if, if you're living in the place, you don't get that emotion, and then maybe you go to, sometimes the monks go to, Christmas Mass, you know, all night, and they get come out blissed out from singing. Um, when shepherds watch watch their watch their flocks at night, you know, <laughs> they've seen the new way and how lovely it all is. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when they were kids, you couldn't drag them into a church. <laughs> then it was all. Video nasties and uh, and uh, football. But then suddenly, because of the new, is going to be exciting, and the same and the same thing can't have that emotional rise to it. So, but then you, if you equate that emotional feeling with with this means it's the right thing, then you form a view appears. Yeah. And, but then you notice the views can change because when your emotions move, then suddenly something else is convincing. You get that same feeling of interest, excitement, enthusiasm. Oh, that must be right. If that was right, then what I was doing before wasn't right. I must have been deluded. Or perhaps I've grown out of it. Perhaps I've seen the new way now, and the old way was when I was not mature. You know, I wasn't really there. And so we can kind of be going, moving on like this, not really understanding the what's happening in the mind and heart, how we keep reading these messages as, as ultimate truths. The real test of commitment is, you know, the, with commitment there's a kind of an energy behind making it, but then you stay with it and you, you watch what happens when the, the mood changes. Sooner or later, you see something that isn't quite so nice, and then then a view forms. Well, maybe this is kind of sixty percent good, or it's good most of the time. They mean well. It's quite a good, quite a good thing. I've got a lot of respect for these people. They're quite good. <laughs> and then next time it's well, you know, we all know what monks are like. You know. <laughs> and next time it's well, they say they're mindful, but you know, I've seen them falling asleep most of the time. And gradually the whole thing kind of erodes because you can't because you you know you one is looking for the sign of truth to be marked with a particular feeling and the ability to form a view about it. I think most most people go through this experience, falling in love, falling out of it, having doubt. But the even when we're in love, then there's the pain of seeing the beloved if other people don't respect it. So I remember we had this uh, occasion we've had. Um, um, when we were first in London, we, and there was a, a Burmese man who used to support. He was support monks, very support monks, very devout Buddhist, and you know he's brought up as a Buddhist and so on and so on and so on and so on. And he would, he'd come to the vihara and he'd make do these proper, make all his offerings and prostrations and do the chanting, you know, all the proper rituals yeah. and so forth. And he's very generous. And he would say. I remember him saying one time to to Ajahn Sumedho, he said, "We are 
we are so, we Burmese one day we are so devout Buddhism means so much to us we are, we we love and love and respect the monks so much and then when we see these English people coming to the monastery and then pointing their feet at the shrine we want to kill them <laughs> <laughs> Because the, lo- the loved object wasn't being universally loved in the way that we felt it should be. And certainly in, 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 in inter-monastic experience, you know, we can feel that the thing that you're with that you felt a sense of conviction about, and then other monasteries don't do it quite the same way. They may be there, they have things that they emphasize, and things that we don't emphasize and things that that uh, and vice versa and you can go there and you can start to kind of think they're not really good at this are they <laughs> pretty sloppy on that aren't they fancy not knowing about that they never do any of this you kind of get this little thing muttering in the back of your mind and finding fault with things or, or being patronizing about it like well they're, they're probably very well intentioned after all And it's that the, the, something in you steps out and you f- one forms an opinion, a, a view about it all, based upon your, own, your belief in the own standards and expressions of commitment, expressions of spirituality, really being that spirituality. So there's various kinds of conflict that come up from this tendency to to catch the moment, the enthusiasm, and transform it into a statement and a view. And we can see this certainly, you know, we can think of very, in, in religious terms, you know, differences, how you can form opinions about one religion against another, or one tradition against another, or one teacher against another. And we can think perhaps it's something that's just the domain of, of of religions, or, or, but actually, it's much deeper than that because we're we're always doing it, or very often doing it. The mind, the tendency to form views, is very deeply ingrained. We're always doing it. We're doing it about ourselves. Well, we don't necessarily do it in conceptual terms. We have it. We have a sometimes a non-conceptual, but a perceived or an emotive image of who we are that we believe in. So we think, well, I can't do that. Well, I'd never do that. That's the sort of thing I, I'm good at. So we, we keep, something that keeps muttering our definition of what we are. I don't like to do those, that. So I'm, I'm not that kind of a person. This kind, this thing going on, and, and of course views about other people. She's like this. He's like that. He's one of those. And views about nationalities, what Greeks are like, or Afghani's or something. We're always forming conceptual models, and we're forming that about our actions. We we have little personal ideologies. personal philosophies and they grant us a kind of uh, security, a kind of steadiness but they also with them bring in the smoke screen of avoiding and not looking into our need to believe in something and need to to feel we to to be something we can define ourselves of as and need to have something our identity craving our personality craving craving to say I am this you know I've got boundaries that I can recognize and define and I'm safe within and everything within inside that boundary is known and sorted out and works and it doesn't
the whole system of views is in a way of, of trying to to form an image, an opinion of what one is, to give one that sense of 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 solidity, of density, of a th- being three-dimensional personality. But being a three-dimensional personality is still suffering because then we conflict with other solid beings who got their dimensions and their powers and their energies and their convictions and of course however solid we are we still tend to crumble and and wilt in the end (laughs) or even not before the end unfortunately (laughs) it's a long way down and it goes on for a long time you know it's not it's not the last day that you start wilting on it's about it's about 40 years into the into the run and then you've got about another 30 years of wilting to go. <laughs> wilting and crumbling. For liberation, you're always looking at this, this tendency to grasp anything as a view, being oneself, or as being not oneself. I found it in my experience of living in a living in a monastery. Then, you know, first of all, I, I wasn't particularly so much. I never had much of an idea about being a monk, but I wanted to be out somewhere I could meditate. And this, so the monastery offered one a place where one could meditate. And it seemed uh, that to be able to just uh, fit into it, one could uh, and to. Uh, just to have a clear set of, of values to take on a, the monastic training just just for that purpose alone. I couldn't understand the teachings. I didn't tend to read the books. I couldn't understand the teachings anyway. And fortunately, well, they, all I had to do was meditate. So my view was that this is about meditation. You meditate, you know, the whole thing. If you're a Buddhist, you meditate. It's the same thing. And anybody who didn't do it just wasn't really there, wasn't really practicing. And that eventually through doing this I would arrive at some kind of finalized state and with this finalized state in my pocket then I would walk out and go and do what I wanted to do. I remember talking to, they had a, a, um, a monk who was a carpenter in the monastery and his job was the was the monastery karma. Everything went wrong in Yakuti. You get word to this, this monk, Chumrong, I think his name was, and he'd toddle along with his hammer and he'd fix it up for you. And he used to do a bit of meditation in the, in the, in the, every evening he'd do meditation. I asked him one time, why, you know, Zero was doing 16 hours of it mm-hmm. every day and this fellow was just toddling around knocking nails in and he'd sort of sit for half an hour in the evening and seem quite happy. And I was doing 16 hours of it, and you know, not getting there at all. And I couldn't understand how you could be a monk and not spend all your time doing that. So, so I asked him, "Why do you meditate?" And he said, "Well, it helps me do my work better. <laughs> you know, I find that if I meditate in the evenings, then I feel more peaceful and calm. Next day, I can go out and build more cooties and you know, knock nails in." I couldn't relate to it. But what, you know, why, why be a monk? What's the point of doing it? Surely you, you, you're a monk so that you can meditate. You don't, you're not a monk so you can be a carpenter and, and uh, build cooties. So when I, when I came back to England, then first of all I thought, you know, why do you need to be a monk in England? What's the, what's the point of it? In, in fact, uh, my teacher tended to dismiss all the, all the monastic customs and conventions and the details of the veneer is just being outdated stuff and the real thing was meditation. So he gave me this address of this um, place where they had biofeedback machines. So I went along to this place in Cambridge and I thought I was going to use one of these biofeedback machines which could help you meditate and I put this thing on it was bleeping away and, and they, they, they said well see if you can kind of calm your mind down to get the bleep down. A different level. So I sat there and I kind of concentrated and 
relaxed everything and the bleak went right to the proper place. Oh, oh that was great. You know. So there it was, you know, you could, you could, just with a biofeedback machine, you could sit and it would give you accurate readings of where you're in samadhi or not. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't need all the rest of this stuff. Just <laughs> using a little machine. You, you can meditate. But what I found was that 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 uh, for a, for a while, I, the, the whole point of of being a monk just more or less disappeared, and I was, didn't know whether I was going to continue to do it. I, I lost contact with what it was about, and then because it, because of this tremendous uh, opinion I had that that it, you know that the only thing worth doing in life was this, doing this meditation practices. And the best way you could do it, everything you you kind of fitted your life around that, making a commitment to that, to just to meditation alone. But I could see also that it, it, how tremendously self-important I was becoming, how totally concerned with myself, and how it's kind of very difficult to relate to to other people, you know, who were just like people who you had to deal with in between your meditation periods. If you, if it was, you know, <laughs> and after a while, it began to dawn on me that maybe this did present certain problems in life. If uh, you can only relate to human beings as the as the irritants in between the in between the good bits, so then we began to move out of that particular view, and then you finding oneself getting to another another set of views about it being about you know community life. And when first of all entering living in a community which I hadn't really done before was you get the same kind of enthusiasm and 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 this is really it and then we got into all the training rules and the chanting oh, this is really it this is what you do to become good to really get there you do it this way and then but then of course there came the conflict with people who weren't doing that or the endless bickering over the right ways and the best monastery and the best place to practice. And then after all, uh, then I found that uh, the teacher, Ajahn Smith, didn't seem to care very much about it all. You know, he would, he said, it didn't really matter. And uh, you know, but you've got to be committed to this. You know, you're teaching it. You're the leader of all this thing. You've got to really be passionate about this, all these rules. I mean, he'd say, "Well, you know, waste of time, a lot of, lot of it. <laughs> but it's just something you do, you know, and don't make anything out of it." And uh, I remember asking him about why, why, why can't we drink milk in the afternoon, and yet we're allowed cheese? I don't. Why? Surely, you know, milk and cheese are directly related. Cheese is a food, milk isn't. Why can't why can't we eat why can't we drink milk in our tea and yet and yet we can't eat cheese? I was getting quite upset about it. He just laughed and he said, It's a crazy old world Because it was all with the with the view view mind always thinks everything's got to be reasonable and make sense. It fits into the little frame. It's totally rational. And, but then when one approaches the life from the monastic life from that point of view, it it it, it isn't reasonable. It isn't rational. But what it does is it makes you look at the belief in rationality, the belief in purpose, the belief in in samadhi, the belief in vinaya, the belief in training, the belief in communities, the belief in rapture, the belief in joy, the belief in insights, the belief in study, the belief in learning, the belief in Buddhism, the belief, you know, this constant craving to have something you could believe in and say is right and that I've got it and I am it. And every one of them lets you down. Or isn't until you see that the problem is that there's nothing wrong with any of them really, but you're asking conventional things to be ultimate things. And the beauty of it is that 
because they let you down, uh, but there's nothing wrong with them, it's like, a, it's like an unerring reminder that there's nothing to grasp. And that's all it ever was. And you can use all of these things without, without grasping. And the only way to use them without grasping, the whole aim of it, is to understand grasping attachment, inner needs, and how it works, and the kind of the delight that stimulates it, and the sense of conviction that accompanies it, and then the, the, the fading and the, and the suffering that comes after that. The whole sequence of delight, conviction, disappointment, suffering. So that we can go to the next delight, conviction, disappointment, suffering. So if we can go to the next delight, conviction, disappointment, and suffering. <laughs> and then, oh, you've been through this six or seven times, you, you start to get, you begin to perceive the pattern that perhaps things are not to be delighted in, in that way, not to be gobbled up, not to be held, they're to be used for letting go and witnessing the patterns of our attachment. And then this is the way we, commitment is actually that which, which holds us through that process, which, which kind of carries us along through that process. when we ask ourselves what what does commitment really mean we can find conventional things that are like uh, their handholds on it their ways of approaching there's only one commitment actually there's a commitment to the truth to liberation it's the only thing that, that really one can be committed to because nothing else really lasts everything else is just a a trip, a thing that goes a certain way and then begins to sputter out. The only thing that can that you can be committed to, that you can sustain commitment on, is is towards truth, towards freedom, towards emptiness, because that's that's the biggest thing. That's the vastness. That's the thing that you that you can't get to the end of. You can never get disappointed of it because you can never hold it. You can never really get around it. You can never really form a view of it. It's the place where the views, the opinions, the conjectures disappear. So it's the only place that really commitment belongs to. And we use various things just to exercise our ability to pick something up, hold it, go through the whole process of change, emotional ups and downs, restlessness, gladness, you know, forming opinions about ourselves in relationship to the things we're committed to, whether we're really good enough or not very good or 100% or wavering, you know, these kind of things. Just to, to witness this stuff that's changing. And nothing there to be ashamed of or guilty about. So I never, like, I never really ask anybody to, to make a commitment. It's not up to me to, to ask anybody to make it, because that, that isn't what it's about. It's not going to say, I want you all to come here and take the five precepts. That's what you should do in order to, to please me and to show you're loyal. You should come and do this every two weeks. And then if you, you know, and then really I recommend that you become monks and nuns. That's what I want you to do, and then you, you know, you really be on the path. Because that's a view and an opinion, isn't it? And it's not... I can't recommend anybody being a Buddhist monk. <laughs> it's not that I can... I'm not that I would reject it either, I can't say don't do it. But it's up, it's, it's up to you. For some reason or another, I mean, I could never recommend it to myself. 
for some reason or another that's beyond me really one finds oneself here in this situation and then you're just dealing with the various kinds of doubt hesitation self-image that come up but it's not because you have to it's because you are and the path proceeds through the path is one that proceeds rather mysteriously through the process of of just letting go of the images not of searching for one so you don't actually become a bhikkhu you, you just give up becoming other things for a while you just kind of move out of that kind of becoming and you don't really do it reasonably you, you don't know why you do it particularly after, after a year or two you really don't know why you did it <laughs> I can't, you know, I can never really ask any or encourage anybody. But neither would I ever say don't do it. Or say it's no good. It's only, it's as good as your own understanding makes it. It's as, uh, the, the, you know, it, this life is really a totally free thing. It's exactly and only what what you're making of it. The life is really only about suffering, attachment, self, and freedom. And the expressions and the means that you use are things that come to you. I don't know why they come to you. But you know why. The moment comes and something in your mind either well, I don't know about that. Or perhaps, perhaps tomorrow, or maybe I could do. Well, is it right? Is it, you know? Or something in your mind goes, oh, just jump. It's not faith. Faith in what? Mm. It's not faith in a particular thing. It's just the mind, something in the mind longs to move in faith because faith is the beginning of freedom the beginning of formlessness the beginning of not knowing the beginning, an intuition of vastness beyond our little known, secure, figured out reality it's a jump out of that and uh, where that jump's going to and is a rather, you know, it's a it's a matter, a personal matter, and a matter that eventually you realize any definition of it is kind of only temporary. One could say one's you know, committed to, to a particular form of life, but yeah, yes and no, or to, to, uh, to joy, or to helping others, or to wisdom, or whatever. But really these are, these are just milestones or benchmarks that you use to, to keep that jump into vastness alive and you have to keep sometimes you have to keep changing it around during the vasa we do we, we, we very much um, it's a time when, when you feel the need or at least I feel the need to, to make some kind of small uh, a commitment a resolution something to work on like something one decides to give up doing or be more careful about or something you decide you're definitely going to do every day like you know, get up earlier or, or have a day of silence or give up something when you pick up one of these, these things you, you, you do them um, because what it does is it, it's, it's like recognizing a place where you're just getting habitual and determining to, to, to move against that it's, a, it's very much in the spirit of, of the inquiry and the going forth of our lives is to, is to, is to move against the habit to, to jump out of a habit to put down a habit and uh, 
But we, when we form views about it, then we form the, we get into the wrong way again. We form a view that, that you're someone who doesn't take sugar or doesn't, you know. So you look upon all sugar takers as as weaklings or as uh, cravers, you know. Or somebody may decide you're not going to read newspapers. So you look upon all newspaper readers as worldlings. Or you're going to fast every three days a week. So you look upon all people who don't fast as gluttons. Or you may take on some kind of resolution that you're going to spend so much time you know, doing a particular act of service. So you think the people who don't do that are mean. And how how it it goes like like that. Until you see that there's only really one thing that that's worth doing, that you can use these any commitment for is to understand the the, the conceit, the craving, the opinionatedness, the impatience, the wavering of the mind, and just get through it, just by sheer perseverance. Because suffering and defilement is an impermanent condition. It's not permanent. It's not absolute. If you stay with it long enough and you keep aware, you get through it. It's not innate. And that's what it's like, really. It's just getting through all the images. And some of these images are can, can act as smoke screens to hide our boredom, our restlessness, or our sense of inadequacy. So even with resolutions, I, I found that I'd get kind of uh, high on making resolutions. I'd make about half a dozen of them. You know, I'd make a new one every day. You get because uh, I get a kind of a inspirational high out of just making a resolution. Well, today I'm gonna not gonna drink anything all day long, or today I'm not gonna you know I'm gonna stand up I'm gonna stand on one leg for half an hour. Anything really, just because the feel, you know, feeling of the, the sort of gung-ho energy one gets out of making like an emotional energy, a feeling you're really doing something significant, rather than just be hanging around, passing the time. So really what one's making a commitment to is that, is that particular mood and feeling. And it's... Uh, It doesn't go very far because it's unsatisfactory, and then you've got to do something else to get feel high again. So after a while, you realise that the whole whole forming of view is the problem. So one feels the need to be a great meditator, or be if you be the senior monk to be the best monk. The senior monk is the best, best person in the whole damn monastery. Is me, because <laughs> I'm senior and been here longest, so I must be wiser than the person who got here first. But then, after, you know, realise after a while the whole need to, 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 to think that you're better than anybody else is a strain and a hassle. To be the best meditator or the most diligent or the strictest, or who eats least, sleeps less, talks less, drinks less, meditates most, studies more, practices more, wiser, more joyful, more loving, more compassionate, better than anybody else. Around here, you know, it's, 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 it's suffering, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that you're saying that I've, you know, I'm setting my mind on being the, the stupidest, slackest, <laughs> most indulgent monk in the monastery either. But just to just to to, to get clear of those ways of, of of feeling, they're often they're not really thought. I don't think we think these things, but we certainly can feel that sense of anxiety that. Well, you know, maybe I'm not very good at all this, and you know, 
I think that that monk who's only three vasas is he's really you know he doesn't fall asleep like I do in meditation oh dear and the nuns they're much happier and cheerful they're much more patient than I am they don't blow up like I do oh dear you know we say you know and then this monk is much more capable than I am oh dear you know so you get to be feel frightened of anybody who's got any virtues because they show you up you only be happy if you're, if you're surrounded by a load of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's it's you could realise that it's more important to be to to just be accurate. All you have to do is is be be accurate about it because there's no you can't compare. It's not it's not a comparative experience. It's just the only person here is you. <coughs> and that's what you're working with, the way that we project around us and compare and contrast. And I'm this way because he's, I must be like this because she's like that. I must be worse because she's like that. I must be better because he does that. I must be best because it says this in the book. Until, until you, this way is, is just bondage. So the ending of uh, the, the way out of suffering is towards the ending of that activity, that view forming, the ending of the personality view, the ending of the the um, the doubt and the wavering of the mind, and the ending of the belief in in attachment to particular practices, outward forms, conventions, and rules, which doesn't mean a rejection of them either, but but they're they're being used skillfully. They're being used as grounds in which one witnesses the, the, and tries to wake up to the projections and the delusions of the mind. And this is the way to use the, the commitment to go past all these things that that uh, hold us and bind us in our life towards the end of suffering, towards the end of con- the contracted, fearful, wavering needing heart to some to that place which is which is uh, which is true so I find myself that 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 Buddhism for some reason the images of it resonate for me not all of the the, the teachings resonate for me not all of the practices or conventions don't you know some leave me stone cold but the image of Buddha, of just of a joyful, clear, composed, peaceful being, is good enough for me, just as a kind of, as an icon. And the rest of it is just uh, having established that, then there's certain things you, you kind of, you do as the way in which you relate to that, that particular image and that particular archetype. And this is what it means to be a, pr- a practicing practicing Buddhist is that and the rest of it is skillful means that you use to, to, to experiment and witness and test and raise up and cool down the karma of our minds So tonight is the, um, the day, w- the night when we have our all-night meditation vigil. Those of you who uh, have the opportunity, you're very welcome to to join us. Uh, we will have uh, the meditation here until about about midnight. Then we'll have a a circumambulation. We'll do we'll chant the Dhamma Chakra Sutta and do the circumambulation of the stupa. And after that, after a tea break, we're going to go off into the forest. And, uh, and so, yeah, any of you like to come along, you're very welcome. <laughs>